As has been mentioned, certainly already today, it's our blessing to be able to gather in the name of God, to do so with our intent to offer our heartfelt worship to Him, and certainly we're thankful for the presence of each and every individual today, our membership as well as our visitors. It's our desire to lift high the banner of God's truth. For the next few moments this morning, may I invite your attention to a lesson I've entitled, The Comings of Christ, and please note the plural, the comings of Christ. There's a great deal of confusion in the mind of some and perhaps even many as it relates to the coming of Christ. I believe I'll have to have some assistance this morning. If you'd turn the slide for me, please. In regard to the comings of Christ... This slide before us here is an issue about the nature of an introduction. You and I realize well in the Word of God how much is said about the comings of Christ. Let's begin our discussion like this. The Old Testament in 39 majestic books highlighted the fact from that perspective that one day the Christ was coming. Those interesting Old Testament passages, they spoke with directness and with fervor. And they pinpointed the fact of where he'd be born and the kind of individual that he would be. But by the same token, you'll notice the first part of the New Testament highlights he did come. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John set before us the truth of his existence upon earth. Those prophecies of the Old Testament came to pass. But might we quickly note this. The New Testament continues to have much to say about the fact He's coming again. Our study today is going to be in many ways a contrast between the time He came first and the time He will come second. And as we look at those contrasts, we will be able to appreciate not only the distinctions, but embed in our thinking so that we can live as we should, making sure we're ready for that second coming. One by one, as we look at these, let's consider the first one. Have you ever given thought to the fact the Lord came the first time as a baby? But that will not be the way He comes the second time. Let's fill in some of those details like this. Isn't it true, as you can see on the slide, that when the Lord came the first time, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary... In Luke 1, verses 31 and following, and she became pregnant. And of course, a few months later, she gave birth to the one we would call Jesus. Call Him Jesus. Call Him Emmanuel. God with us. Matthew 1, 21. In that connection, you'll easily note this. We know that babies are helpless. Babies are not able to take care of themselves. They are not able to provide their own food. They're not able to take care of the other necessities in life. They are wholly dependent upon someone else, for instance, their parents, to provide for them all that is necessary. It is in that connection you may notice. May I suggest it's that reason that many people love the baby Jesus. After all, innocent, sweet, He gives no commandments. You love that innocency, but many have much less an interest in the adult Jesus. For He makes demands. He tells you things you must do to please Him. And furthermore, He gives specific instructions about the fact of what will happen if you don't. 
May I again say, many love the baby Jesus, but are far less thrilled about the adult Jesus. With that thought in mind, namely that Jesus came first as a baby, look at the bottom of that slide. How will He come the second time? It will not be as a babe in Bethlehem's manger. Rather, don't we appreciate this? Throughout the saga that you and I recognize in the New Testament, we see verses such as these. Revelation 17, 14, we see Him riding upon a white horse, and He wears a vesture with these words upon it, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's almost reiterated two chapters later in Revelation 19, 16. We notice the first time as a babe, the second time as a reigning monarch, a king. He's a conqueror. He will be appreciated rather easily as one certainly who is not helpless, one who certainly is not in the same way that a baby would be, but rather he's majestic, he's powerful, he's mighty. As you and I give thought to that distinction, perhaps it's fair to close that slide this way. Baby on the one hand, a king on the other. When our Savior makes His return... You and I don't know when that's going to be. The New Testament, in fact, points to us in greatness the following truth. No man knows the day of that coming. In fact, Jesus was able to say in Mark 13, 32, that at that time even He didn't know when it would be. No man knows the day nor the hour. The point is, though, we can rest assured of this. Whenever that is, He is going to appear as the great King That thought will reappear later in our lesson, but let's go ahead and note the second consideration. Not only baby versus the king. Have you ever given thought to this? When our Savior came to this earth the first time, He came as the one judged, but He will not appear the second time that way. Let's fill in some of those details like this. When Jesus came the first time, oh, it's true, that for a period of some 30 years in His life, we have very little detail. But then after He began His public ministry, there were some who were so impressed by Him and who were so thrilled with what He was able to do, they were ready to appoint Him as King. John 6, verse 15. They liked the fact He could feed 5,000, you see, with but five loaves and two fishes. They liked the fact He could provide in abundance and do so and fill that which was their physical needs. They wanted a king like that. Isn't it interesting in that connection that not only did Jesus appreciate that element, they judged Him to be worthy of a kingship. But look at the next example. In, John, rather in Matthew 11, John the Baptist, you may remember, he in fact, was striving to draw some conclusions about Jesus. He was calling into play some judgments about Him. Throughout the New Testament record, we notice that many judged Jesus. Some judged Him to be like a king. Others judged Him very less respectfully than that. Look at that next one on the slide. There were some who judged Him as a failure. They actually saw in Him someone who wasn't deserving and worthy of the attention. In Luke 4, verses 22 and following, when Jesus came to Nazareth, His hometown, and He preached that day, there were many who were very upset by the sermon. 
There were many who were very much, in fact, troubled by it, and they were ready to take his life. They had judged him unfit to live. What do you think about that? They judged their Lord. And in the mind of many, he was found to come up short. He was found to come up, in essence, as a failure. But you might notice in Luke 24, 21, there were others who judged him. They were so hopeful that he had been the Messiah. And those two walking on the road to Emmaus, they even commented, we hoped he'd be the one to deliver us from Rome. You see, they were judging him and what they hoped he would be. Let's switch gears to the second part. If it was true that Jesus came first and that so many judged Him, notice that when He comes the second time, He will be the judge. He'll not be the one who's judged by others. He will be the one proclaiming the judgment. Look at some of these verses with me. In John 5 verse 22, our Lord Himself declared emphatically, "...the Father hath given all judgment to the Son." Jesus, how much judgment has been given to you? All of it. On that day of judgment, as each and every one stands before the presence of the judge, he will be recognized as the absolute authority that he possesses. He will be seen as the pure and sheer monarch with absolute jurisdiction and right to rule. He will be the judge. You'll notice in Romans 2.16, Paul, as he preached to the church in Rome, he pointed out to them, God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Jesus will be the one actually making the declaration of the judgment. Sometimes, perhaps, that's easy for you and me to overlook. We picture God the Father perhaps on the day of judgment, making the proclamations of the judgment, and maybe Jesus will be standing at His right-hand side as a symbol of authority. That's not the presentation of the New Testament. The Father will be the one looking on in the august presence of His nature, and the Son will be the one declaring the judgment. And if you and I have been faithful, it will be Jesus who will say, Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. But if we've been unfaithful, It'll be that Son, the very one that died on the cross. The very one who gave His lifeblood to purchase the church. Acts 20, 28. It'll be the Son who will say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. What a frightful scene. Isn't it interesting, perhaps in that connection, we might note this. The certainty with which Jesus will appear as the judge is echoed in this passage. Recall the scene with me in Acts 17 when Paul stood there in Athens and he preached to the intelligentsia gathered on that occasion. And as he did, he pointed out to them this truth. Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent because He hath appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness, listen, by that man whom He hath ordained, whereof He hath given assurance unto all men, in that He hath raised Him from the dead. We see in that passage then that God is going to declare the judgment through His Son, and the certainty of that event is as certain as His resurrection was. Jesus was resurrected. 
the tomb was found empty. Matthew 28, 6 highlights the emptiness of it. And today you and I, of course, still appreciate the power of that empty tomb. And just as certain as its emptiness, Jesus is going to judge us. Let's close that slide like this. Paul directed these comments to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5. In the 10th verse of that chapter, as Paul reminded them of the nature of Jesus and His authority, he said, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God, to borrow the wording of Romans 14, 12. For then every one of us shall appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Did you know? Judgment seat of Christ. That every one of us may give account of the things done in the body, whether it be good or bad. Jesus came the first time and He was judged by others, but this time when He comes again, He will be the judge. How's your life and mind stacking up? Using the New Testament, are we going to be thankful and pleased or will, be, or will we in fear recoil at what the judge has to say? Point number three will be this one. As we contrast again the first and the second coming, the first coming could easily be denoted in this fashion. When the Lord came that first time, although it's true, He was born there in Bethlehem, and He knew all the sweetness of being as a child. He really was born to die. He came into this world to die. You and I don't like to think about little babies that way. We see life in a little baby. We appreciate the future that's ahead and we think about all the potential and all the possibility and we easily imagine what that child may become. But quite frankly, the Lord was born to die. In Isaiah 53, even in the days of the Old Testament, this prophecy was found. The prophecy of the suffering servant. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He is despised, and we esteemed him not." That's the first three verses, but listen to what the prophet declared beginning in verse 4. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Again, notice he did that for others. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That was written over 750 years before Jesus was born. He was born to die. He was wounded for our transgressions, and the prophet knew that's the way it was going to be. Surely in that connection, then, we can look at these additional verses. In Hebrews 9, verse 22, "...without the shedding of blood is no remission." Even in the days of the Old Testament, there were animals that were slaughtered, and the people were required to do certain things with the blood of that animal. And all the while we appreciate that it was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin, Hebrews 10 verse 4. But all of those sacrifices looked forward to a time and to a day when the perfect sacrifice 
would be made. Jesus was born to be that perfect sacrifice. And roughly 33 years later, He did it. He went to the cross, and He voluntarily gave His life, His blood. And in so doing, you and I can appreciate the connection to God possible through that blood. Jesus was born to die. In particular, in Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus said that the Son of Man has come to give His life a ransom for many. To give His life. That never ceases to be a remarkable truth that you and I ponder and we're about to think about it as we surround the Lord's Supper later in our service today. Although Jesus first came ultimately to die, look at the second one. May I suggest to you that when He comes that second time, it will be the embodiment of absolute and perfect and eternal life. Let's fill in some details touching that refrain. In so doing, could we begin in John 5, verses 28 and 29. As Jesus, fairly early in His ministry, made this statement, oh, how strong it is about our topic for the morning. Jesus said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Jesus, when's this going to happen? The next chapter He details it, it's the end. When the end of time comes, all marked by the coming of Christ, it will be a time when all the graves are going to be emptied. Every single cemetery will be emptied. Every one of them. And when all of those come forth, of course those spirits will return from that Hadean realm and reinfuse those bodies and they'll be given an immortal body. But you'll notice that when the Lord comes, it'll be an essence of life. And oh, how you and I give thought to being amongst the number recognized as being resurrected to life. Oh, it's true that there'll be a whole lot resurrected to damnation. They're going to be resurrected and stand before the very judge we've spoken of, and they'll be told, Depart from me, I never knew you. But oh, how thrilling it is to think about being among the number resurrected to life. To have lived faithfully in obedience to Jesus. To be those who are looked upon from the New Testament standpoint of those who in Revelation are found faithful. Those who've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation seven fourteen. Today, are you and I among that number? Oh, how we look forward to that kind of life. This world brings its sorrows, its disappointments. It brings its heartache. Sometimes brought about by events. Sometimes in distant places and sometimes brought about by those nearest to us that we love because of the decisions they make. We look and yearn and long for a time when in Revelation 21.4, no sorrow, no pain, no death, no crying, no tears. Life will be fully and recognized completely eternally. For Revelation 22, verses 2 and 3 says, No more death. None. Surely in all of that we could then say this. Revelation 20, verses 1 and following, describe it like this. 
I know that there is a great deal of confusion and misunderstanding in the mind of some about that chapter. It's the thousand-year reign. Jesus is not coming to reign on earth for a thousand years. Rather, what that portrays is the number 1,000 is 10 times 10 times 10. In essence, it is this perfection of duration, this long, in fact, eternally long span in which the Master Himself will be the reigning King, and all of us who are His faithful servants will rejoice in that way endlessly. Once you enter into heaven, there's no casting out. You're never forced to leave. Nothing like that will ever be. Jesus came the first time to die, but He's coming back to set in order ultimate eternal life. What about the fourth one? In this one, you'll notice, Jesus came to establish. Establish what? Well, it isn't difficult to find within the pages of the New Testament the following truths. One of the great missions of our Savior when He came to this earth was to put in place an organization. We, of course, call it the church because the Bible does. The church is so extraordinarily special. But Jesus came to establish it. In Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19, if I may just borrow a part of that verse, Jesus said, I will build my church. The church was not in existence in the Old Testament days. It wasn't in existence even while Jesus walked upon this earth. But Jesus put in place the necessary matters to bring that church about. Jesus came to establish the church. Today, you and I thrill at the thought the church again came into being in Acts chapter 2. It wasn't established in the year 1500 or 1600 or 1700. All of those organizations that started during that span of time came about centuries too late. Jesus came to establish His church. Didn't He say in Matthew 4, 17, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom was near in time to the time Jesus made that statement. A few years. It's unthinkable that at hand would mean 1,500 years or more. No wonder in that light, note this statement. In Acts 2.47, the very last verse of that chapter, we find the church was in existence. Although it had not been when that chapter began, it was by the time it ended. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. In Colossians 1.13, the church at Colossae was such that they were members in the kingdom. And today, if you and I are faithful Christians, we too enjoy membership, faithful membership in that kingdom. Jesus came the first time to establish the church. He isn't coming the second time for that same purpose. May I direct your attention to 1 Corinthians 15? In that chapter, we have the following statement about the church and its relation to the Lord's second coming. It is stated rather emphatically. It says, Then cometh the end. May I invite us to consider the strength of that phrase. What's coming, Paul? The end. When what will happen? Verse 24. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. 
even the Father, when He shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For He must reign till He hath put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. We have here a description that the kingdom is going to be delivered over to the Father. The kingdom, you see, is not going to be established when Jesus comes back. It is already in existence. And it has been now for approximately two millennia. And it shall continue to stand, and it shall continue, you see, until the end of time. But at that time, notice, it shall be delivered up to the Father. The interest that attaches in our heart to thinking about the events of that day, to be reckoned among that number, the faithful to Jesus. These final verses in Matthew 6, you may recall there that Jesus said, Thy kingdom come. Well, notice He isn't coming back to establish it. He's coming back to terminate His reign over it. There's a great deal in the premillennial set of ideas that's wrong. And this again is one of them. Those who are given to that persuasion, they somehow think that Jesus is coming back to start His reign. That's not so. He's coming back to end His reign. Today, He is reigning over His kingdom, the church. And His faithful Christians, you and I submit to Him. We adore Him. We honor Him. And we strive to live according to His rule and His authority. He's reigning now. And He will continue to reign until death is ended. These four things so far prepare us for the last one. Number five, let's consider this one. There's also something very strongly that can be said about the distinction between His first coming and His second as it relates to teaching and the requirements of salvation. Let's build that thought this way, starting again when He first came. The Lord came first to deliver to mankind the message that you and I would recognize as the gospel inclusive of the gospel plan of salvation. Because after all, that was not a part of the Old Testament. But Jesus came to put in place His final will and testament, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you notice, in terms of that, Jesus came to put that in place. He came to make that a reality. Look with me at some of these verses. John 3, 16 Perhaps that well-known golden text. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That element in belief takes us, as you can see, to John eight twenty four. The Lord again speaking said, Except you believe I am He, you'll die in your sins. And we know to die in one's sins is more awful than what you and I could fully imagine. Jesus came that men wouldn't have to do this, but you've got to believe in me, He said. That means more than just a mental acknowledgement to who He is. That belief involves a submission to His will, a belief that He is who He said that He was, a belief that brings about obedience. In Luke 13, 3, Nay, but except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. No wonder then on that day of Pentecost, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Thus they were told to repent. 
But did Jesus also demand confession? You and I, with our mouth, with the character of our bodily being, give affirmation that, yes, Jesus, you are the Son of God, and I believe it with all my heart. That's called a good confession, 1 Timothy 6.12. And then finally we notice this person is now buried in water for the remission of sins. Now notice, Jesus came the first time to deliver that kind of a message. And we notice that as individuals soon on that day of Pentecost would appreciate it, and they would give their lives over to that. And the Christian message became so prominent. But you'll notice that Jesus isn't coming the second time to preach the gospel. He isn't coming the second time to stand and deliver sermons about the necessity of obedience. That time will have passed. There will no longer be an opportunity. If we aren't ready when He comes back, if we aren't ready at the time we pass from this life in what we call death, then our eternity is sealed. Our fate, nothing, can more, nothing more can be done about it. Look at some of these verses. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9, this was read earlier in our hearing today. Brother Colonel echoed these sentiments before us. He said, using the words of Paul, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven. What's that? When He comes back. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven. How? With His mighty angels in flaming fire. He ain't coming back as a baby. He's coming back as a king with an absolute message of judgment. And as He returns in flaming fire, doing what? Taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. He's coming back and oh, how it's not going to bring Him any pleasure. Aren't we told in Ezekiel 33 that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked? For this is just one more being who has chosen to reject and ignore the message of salvation. God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but if they've chosen to live that way and then to die that way, then my judgment will be absolute. One last thing. In Romans eleven twenty two, Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God. Toward thee, goodness, if thou continue in His goodness, but toward them which fail severity. It will be a day when, you see, there will be no preaching of the gospel. Oh, it's true that many a person is going to lament the fact that I knew what to do and I didn't do it. But Jesus won't be preaching and offering an invitation that day. There will be no more time for invitations. Time will be no more. We've looked today then at the comings of Christ. Jesus, we're told in John 1, 29, The Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Are you and I members of His flock? Are we a sheep in His pasture? To borrow the wording of Psalm 100, verse 3. Are we those who in fact follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth? John 10, verses 17 and 18. Are we those who in Revelation 14, 4 are described as following after that Lamb to everlasting life. As each of us examine ourselves today, our conclusion slide looks like this one. In it, as we've looked at the comings of Christ, 
We notice first, He came first as a baby, but He'll come back as a reigning King. He came the first time as one who was judged. He'll come back the second time as the judge. He came the first time to die, but He's coming back to set in order eternal life. He came the first time to establish the church. He's coming back to terminate His reign. He came the first time to proclaim the gospel. He's coming back this time to make demands of its requirements. Are you and I a faithful Christian today? If you find lackings in your life, if you find that at this point you're distanced from God, it isn't His fault, it's yours. You need to come back at once to your first love. If you have once been a faithful Christian, you see the invitation the Lord now extends. And He so much begs you. He wants you to realize where you now are and where you again could be. But He leaves the decision to you. If you've never become a Christian, the gospel plan of salvation we mentioned a moment ago, believe in Jesus, would you? Repent of your sins, confess His name, and then be baptized. These baptismal waters are ready. Everything could be taken care of in a matter of minutes. If we could be of assistance and help in any way today, it would be our privilege to act along with Christ in that effort and invite you to come right now while together we stand and while we sing.